move to a new location, but many people would like to change something in their lives. Now, why do people want to make those kind of changes? Well, in a great percentage of the cases, the the changes are one that the person believes will make them happier or at peace or more secure. The Bible as a whole challenges us to seek happiness and peace and security not through external changes in our life but rather through internal ones. A Christian is empowered to live above circumstances not under circumstances as we commonly say. Now let me set the stage for you in case you haven't heard the last couple of messages. Paul is at the end of his third missionary journey. He has gone through all the churches in Greece. He has collected funds for what we might call the Jewish Famine Relief Fund, which he planned on delivering himself in Jerusalem. He also wanted to be present in Jerusalem in order to have one more opportunity to present the gospel uh, to the Jews during the celebration of Pentecost. When he arrived, he met with James and the elders of the church at Jerusalem, and they told him that they thought it would be best if he would include himself with some Jews who were going about uh, fulfilling a vow in order to dispel some rumors that he was against the Jews and that he was against the law. So he went in with these four Christian brothers to participate in a purification ritual. While they were there, some Ephesian Jews who had rejected his message about Jesus being the Messiah spotted him, they grabbed him, they knocked him to the ground, they gathered thousands of Jews around them, and they began to say, this is the man who is against the law of Moses, who is against the temple, he proclaims Jesus as the Messiah, this man has even taken a Gentile beyond the dividing wall within the temple, this calls for his death. They would have killed him there on the spot, were it not for the Romans. Knowing the nature of the Jews, the Romans had built a garrison on the corner of the temple. And from there they saw the riot. They ran down and and rescued Paul. As he's being led back up the steps into into the fortress, he asked permission to speak to and give his testimony to this angry crowd. As he spoke, he spoke about Christ's return and about Christ's resurrection and his messiahship. (laughs) He started another riot. The Romans grab him. They take him inside in order to save his life, and there he discovered he was a Roman citizen. Finally, the commander of the Roman soldiers uh, took Paul before the Jewish Sanhedrin, which was their highest religious court, and placed him before the high priest. He asked them to solve this dilemma. And again, Paul stepped up and for the third time took the opportunity to share about Jesus Christ. He says, I am on trial today for speaking about our hope, about the resurrection of the dead. And as soon as he spoke those words, another riot broke out because the Sadducees and the Pharisees who made up the Sanhedrin had opposite views of the resurrection. Here we find Paul, finally. Claudius again has to rescue him and take him back into the Roman barracks. He's kind of between a rock and a hard place. He's between 
Being in a position where he is without, he is alone and without his Christian friends, he is discouraged over the Jewish response to his good news about the Messiah. He is in the protective custody of the Romans, and the Jews want to kill him. It is at this point in verse 11 that Jesus appears to Paul and encourages him. And one of the things that he does to encourage him is he tells him, Look, I've got further plans for your life. You're going to continue to live, and in fact, you're going to go to Rome to testify of me. Now, I want us to begin looking in verse number 12 as we see a a new conspiracy against Paul. It says, when it was day, some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath, saying they would neither eat nor drink till till they had killed Paul. Now, there were more than 40 that had formed this conspiracy. They make a pledge, an oath, a vow, however you want to say it. More than 40 individuals bound themselves under an oath that they would not eat or drink until Paul was dead. These zealots of Paul's day were the equivalent of what we would call terrorists today. Their cause was the deliverance of their country and people from the control of the Romans. And they operated exactly like the terrorists do in our day. They were violent. They were ready to do anything they thought necessary to accomplish their political goals, even killing innocent people. Now, why did these people want to kill Paul? The text doesn't give us an explanation. It could be that Paul was viewed as a traitor because he deserted the Jewish faith. Paul was not only a follower of Jesus, he was reaching out to include Gentiles. Perhaps these men believed the stories that Paul had indeed brought a Gentile into the Jewish part of the temple. Perhaps they were frustrated that it didn't seem that anybody was going to give them justice. So if the Roman government wouldn't punish Paul, they would take it into their own hands, just like some Islamic extremists do today. Now look at their plan in verse 14 and 15. They came to the chief priests and elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a great oath that we will eat nothing until we have killed Paul. Now you therefore, together with the council, suggest to the commander that he be brought down to you tomorrow as though you were going to make further inquiries concerning him, but we are ready to kill him before he comes near. The Sanhedrin was to ask the commander of the Roman forces to bring Paul back before them again under the pretense of conducting some further inquiry, examination of what had happened the previous day. This would involve moving the apostle from the safety of the tower or the garrison where the Romans were back down into the temple. And the plan was, as the soldiers moved Paul back down into the temple, the mob would have the opportunity to overpower the soldiers and to kill Paul. Now, I want you to notice two things, two characteristics of their zeal that really does correspond with what we see terrorists in our own day. These men certainly had no lack of zeal, but their zeal was as the Bible says in Romans 10, 2, without knowledge. Because zeal alone proves nothing. First of all, they're willing to lie. They no doubt justified their murderous scheme by 
that age-old argument that the cause is so important that it doesn't matter what means are used to achieve it. In their eyes, Paul was an apostate Jew who went around the Roman Empire preaching that Gentiles could know God without first becoming Jews. And to them, this was heresy. And he needed to be silenced. And if they couldn't silence him legally, then they were not opposed to killing him. If some of them died at the hands of the Roman guards who were protecting Paul, so be it. If it required deception to the Roman commander to pull it off, they would use deception and lies. The necessary end justified in their eyes the wicked means. They were also willing to die, much as we see in our own day. Whether they lost their own lives in the process or in the predictable aftermath of what they had planned, when the Roman forces would avenge the death of one of their citizens, it probably mattered no more to them than the violent death that we see in the terrorists of September 11 or the suicide bombers that we see in the Middle East today. And notice what happens with the discovery of their plot in verse 16. So Paul's sister's son heard of their ambush. He went and entered the barracks and told Paul, and then Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, Take this young man to the commander, for he has something to tell him. And so he took him and brought him to the commander and said, Paul the prisoner called me to him and asked me to bring this young man to you, and he has something to say to you. Then the commander took him by hand and went aside and asked privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask that you bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as they were going to inquire more fully about him. But do not yield to them, for more than 40 of them lie in wait for him, men who have bound themselves by an oath that they will either eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for the promise from you. And so the commander let the young man depart and commanded him, tell no one what you have revealed, that you have revealed these things to me. In verse 16, we find out for the first time in the Bible about Paul's family. We didn't know that he had a sister or a nephew up until this point. There are a lot of questions that we'd like to have answered about his family. How did they react to his conversion? Uh, Had they disinherited him? In fact, according to Philippians chapter 3 and verse 8, we kind of come to that understanding that his family had disinherited him. But when Paul's nephew overheard the plan, he went to the tower of Antonio and he told Paul. And Paul, in turn, asked the soldier who was guarding him to take the young man to the commander to tell the story. Some people would say, well... Paul was mighty lucky, mighty lucky, but that really isn't biblical. All throughout the scripture, we're told that God is in, the, in control of circumstances of life. The Bible teaches us that there really is no such thing, although we use the term luck. There is no such thing as luck. God is in charge. Romans 8.28 says... And we know that in, that in all, not some, in all things, God is working for the good of those whom God, who love God and are called according to his purpose. 
what these verses teach us is that Paul's nephew was in just the right place at just the right time because God placed him there. This was no accident. This was God working providentially in Paul's life to protect him. We can see examples of the the providence of God throughout the Bible. One of the best examples, perhaps, was that of Joseph. And I want you to consider with me for a moment some of those coincidences or lucky times that occurred, lucky breaks in Joseph's life. You remember Joseph's brothers got mad at him. I was bragging a little bit about his coat and his relationship with his father. And so his brothers decided to get rid of him. At first they thought to kill him. But they decided rather than kill him to throw him into a cistern. Now it just so happened that they threw him into a cistern at a time when it was dry. And, Paul, and, and Joseph didn't drown. A Midianite caravan just happened to pass by at just the right moment so that Joseph wasn't killed. He didn't die, but was rather sold. Joseph was taken to Egypt, and he was sold into slavery, but he wasn't sold to just anyone. He was sold to the captain of the Pharaoh's guard, a man by the name of Potiphar. Ultimately, Joseph is going to be thrown into prison because of the accusations of Potiphar's wife. But he's not thrown into just any prison. He's thrown into the prison where the political prisoners, the baker and the cupbearer of the Pharaoh, happen to be being held. Just so happened. The baker and the cupbearer both have dreams. And nobody, nobody could interpret those dreams, but it just so happened that Joseph was able to interpret their dreams. One of them was killed and one of them was released. Ultimately, Pharaoh had a dream some two years later and the cupbearer just happened to remember the prisoner who was able to interpret his dreams. And it just so happened that Joseph was the only one who was able to interpret the Pharaoh's dreams, and he was elevated from prison to the second most powerful man in the kingdom just under the Pharaoh. Was Joseph just lucky? Well, some people might say so, but the truth is no, he's not. God was working in Joseph's life so that Joseph could save the nation of Israel. In fact, in Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20, Joseph said, You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good that is now taking place, the saving of many lives. Joseph came to understand that God was using the circumstances of his life to maneuver him into the position that would allow him to save the Israelites. If we really think about it, God's providence is a very practical and and comforting in in our daily lives. If we really do live in a world of random chance, that's a scary thought. 
you never know what's coming your way. You never know what bad thing might happen to you or your loved ones. And so all you can do is hope to get good luck. But the Bible is full of stories like Joseph's. Moses was put in the basket and put into the river, but he just so happened to be pulled out of the water by Pharaoh's daughter. And given the finest education of his day, which enabled him to lead the Israelites out of captivity and to record the first five books of the Bible. Ruth just happened to go to work in the field of Boaz, an unmarried man who could become her kinsman redeemer. And from this, re- this relationship, several generations later, David the king was born. King Xerxes, the Persian emperor, had a sleepless night. And to help him sleep, he chose to read the daily record of the kingdom. And while he was reading that, it just so happened that he read a passage that told about Mordecai's heroism in saving his life from assassination. Xerxes did this on the the very night before Queen Esther came to plead for the life of Mordecai and the people of Israel. The Bible teaches us that God is actively watching over our lives and working in and through circumstances to guide us to his appointed purposes. If God delights in using the little things, the little circumstances, then God can use us, however small or apparently insignificant we may be. Third and finally this morning, the deliverance of Paul. First of all, he is provided with an escort, verse 23. And he called for two centurions, saying, Prepare 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at the third hour of the night and provide mounts to set Paul on and bring him safely to Felix the governor. The commander has Paul removed from Jerusalem where he's in danger to Caesarea and he is to be protected by a force of 470 men. It is estimated that the total strength of the Roman garrison was probably around 600 men. And if that's true, then the commander dedicated almost 80% of his forces to this initial escort and 50% for the complete journey to Caesarea. And Paul was not only protected and provided a royal escort, but he is provided with a horse for transportation for the journey, all thanks to the Roman government. He is also to be introduced by a letter in verse 25. He wrote a letter in the following manner, Claudius Lysias, to the most excellent governor, Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. Coming with the troops, I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. When I wanted to know the reason they accused him, I brought him before their council, and I found out he was accused concerning questions of their law, but, has not, but had nothing charged against him deserving of death or chains. So the commander left a letter 
of introduction to the governor. And in that letter, Claudius implies that he had learned of Paul's citizenship right away. Now, it's not quite true, is it? No, it's not. It's stretching the truth just a bit. He didn't know that Paul was a citizen at first. In fact, he had twice had him bound and was prepared to have him beaten before he discovered that Paul was a Roman citizen. But he does add this assertion that I think is important. He says, Paul seems to have done nothing deserving of death or even of chains. He is left in the hands of the governor. He is detained in in Herod's palace until his trial. Paul will remain under arrest in Caesarea for the next two years and two years in Rome at a minimum. In fact, Paul will speak before Governor Felix next week in chapter 24, and he will speak to his replacement in the following chapter, Governor Festus, and eventually before King Agrippa in chapter 26, all of this taking more than four years. He will spend the remainder of his life in prison. Have you ever found yourself thinking, if the circumstances of my life were different, perhaps I could have accomplished more. I could have done something great for God. I could have overcome some particular difficulty in which I now find myself. We really don't need to think that way because Circumstances do not limit God. Circumstances are not independent of God. In fact, God creates the circumstances. He is the master of circumstances. I can't tell you what God is doing in your circumstances. I can't read the future any more than you can. But I can assure you that God is doing something through your circumstances. It may be that you're going through a rather dark and difficult time. Maybe that you're growing weary in a struggle. But we need to continue to trust in God. His purpose will be accomplished and the will of God will be done. We may not know what God may be doing in us and through us at this point. And time, but faith rests on the assurance that he does know what he is trying to achieve. In his study of the book of Acts, Harry Ironside talks about living through dark times. He says there are times in our lives when not only do things seem dark, but also God seems silent. God seems silent and remote. Does that mean that God has forgotten us or doesn't care about what's happening in our lives? No. In fact, Ironside says this, and I think it's worth remembering. God is never closer to his people than when they cannot see his face. God is never closer to his people than when they cannot see his face. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the assurance that you're in control of our circumstances, that we are not 